Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 116, my quote-unquote paranormal past. And no, I didn't used to be a psychic medium or a ghost hunter, I just like the alliteration, paranormal past. And this episode's just going to be about quirky little anecdotes from my past that have to do with the supernatural. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Margaret Cater Kamstra, talk about alliteration, uh, for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And also, I'd like to give a very big thank you to John Haas, a uh, fairly long-time listener of the show, who I've been friendly with on Facebook and has actually donated to the show before in the past. And he generously donated once again in the amount of $5. And it's so humbling as... As someone, um, as I always talk about, who does both construction and uh, freelance graphic design, I know it's kind of an odd coupling. I know what it's like to labor with your hands and to put a lot of sweat and time and effort into earning a paycheck. So it's very humbling whenever anyone donates to the show. Uh, So thank you again, John. It means a lot. And um, I'll just leave it at that before I get all verklempt. Ha! Yiddish slang via an old uh, SNL skit. Okay, but I do really appreciate that. Like I said, it's very humbling. I know that most of us work hard for our money, and it's a big deal when we decide to part with it. There's Twitter shoutouts to do too, but I might skip those for now just so we can get on with the show. So why do I want to devote an episode to discussing these weird little stories from my past that have to do with the quote-unquote supernatural. Well, on the one hand, I think it'll just make for a fun episode to share these bizarre little stories from my past. And secondly, I'm hoping that it might shed some light on how our minds work regarding supposed supernatural experiences and how often, when you really take an honest look at these kind of experiences or anecdotes. These kind of stories usually end up not having a lot of substance and seem to be short on any kind of real evidence, and they can usually be chalked up to wish thinking or the suspension of disbelief or maybe even simply gullibility or immaturity. But without further ado, I'll start things off with a kind of strange little anecdote about a leprechaun. Yes, I did just say leprechaun. Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this one on the show or not. Uh, I was probably in either kindergarten or maybe first grade or something like that, and we had two female teachers. It was St. Patrick's Day, and uh, they had promised us a visit from a real-life leprechaun. And um, they gave us this kind of green-tinted milk and these bland little, like, crackers or cookies to eat while we waited for the leprechaun. Time went by, more time went by, and guess what? The leprechaun never showed up. And the way that, obviously, (laughs) obviously the leprechaun never showed up. And the way the teachers dealt with this was to blame it on us, the kids, and tell us that We hadn't been good enough to merit a visit from the leprechaun, and and so he had decided not to show. And it's very odd, and uh, 
you know, I laugh about it because it's such a strange little story, but I think even to this day, I still feel a little indignant for myself and those other little kids. On the one hand, they were probably trying to uh, be nice in their own misguided way and get us excited on St. Patrick's Day about this idea of a special visit from a leprechaun. But then obviously they negate all that when not only does the leprechaun not show up, of course, but they then pin the blame on us. And instead of giving us a nice holiday surprise, they end end up uh, leaving us with this feeling of guilt. Uh, Because obviously leprechauns don't exist. They have to explain its absence somehow. And how do they do that? By pinning the blame on the kids. Um, And it's not a profound anecdote or anything, but, but I think there's something to be gleaned from it in the sense that it shows just how readily supposed adults will sometimes lead children astray or kind of pump their heads full of nonsense. And I forget the quote, but I think I've heard uh, Richard Dawkins and others talk about it. But there's a quote, something about, and I'm really paraphrasing here, but isn't a garden beautiful enough without believing that there's fairies living at the bottom of it? Or as I've often said, and I'm someone that's completely enamored with uh, fantasy and mythology and um, symbolism, etc., and a poetic language, but isn't it enough to enjoy fantasy within our own imaginations without having to try to believe in it literally or trying to convince malleable little minds that such things as leprechauns or fairies actually exist? And you guys know me by now. Um, I'm a non-believer. I doubt the existence of a creator deity or an afterlife. And still, I let my imagination go all the time. And I I love sci-fi and fantasy. I love to just kind of daydream about um, all sorts of fanciful ideas. Um, and that's a big part of my life. But I don't believe in that stuff literally. And I even think there's, uh, you guys probably know by now, I'm a Joseph Campbell fan. And I believe there's a lot of power in symbolism and in... Um, ancient stories and myths, but they can resonate with us and give us joy and satisfaction without us needing to believe in them, literally. And uh, I was musing about this the other day, how I think one of the reasons why people tend to want to believe in God or want to believe in the supernatural, uh, whether it be ghosts or psychic abilities or whatever, is because they want a world or a life with magic in it. Um, They're afraid that the mundane world will just be too mundane without those things. And I've actually found for myself that when you give up trying to believe in the supernatural, that an interesting thing happens and you begin to see the wonder in the real world. And I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is a big proponent of this. And uh, even though I have my own criticisms about the Cosmos reboot, I really love what Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing by getting people, uh, especially young people, interested in science by just showing people the wonder of the actual universe, the wonder of science, the wonder of the real world. And I think about things like 
tardigrades, you know, those little tiny things that are also called um, water bears. That's uh, these little microscopic kind of insect looking things. And they're called water bears because for insects, they're kind of cute and they waddle and lumber around on their little stubby legs, kind of the way that a a bear uh, lumbers about. And and before I continue, I don't know if uh, tardigrades are technically insects. Um, I'm actually reading up a little on them right now. Uh, this is funny. Not only are they known as water bears, but they're also known as moss piglets. Um, they have eight legs, and uh, they're considered a segmented micro-animal uh, and also uh, referred to as an extremophile. Despite their microscopic size, they're amazingly tough. They can exist in space. They can exist without food and just these amazing little creatures. And when you think about things like that, when you think about things like black holes um, or when you think about these crazy kind of uh, discoveries in quantum physics, such as non-locality or quantum entanglement, where particles separated by space still seem to influence one another without any observable means of agency or the ability of atomic particles to exist in more than one state at the same time. Sometimes I've, I've even heard scientists go as far as to say that you could have, say, like an, an atomic particle existing in more than one place at the same time. I don't know if this is the mainstream view, but there's all these kind of spooky discoveries about the way that the universe operates on a uh, microscopic or subatomic level. Every fiber of our being screams out that that's illogical and it shouldn't be possible, and yet somehow it is. Um, I mean, there's so much uh, wonder and mystery in the real world and in science that, in a way, it almost beats any kind of lurid supernatural notion that we might buy into. So next, I'll talk about the Ouija board. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this one on the show either. And these little anecdotes, some of them are ones I've started to put in the book I've been working on. And so things get kind of confused in my head. I can't remember what I mentioned on the show, what I uh, wrote about in uh, this book, which, as I mentioned, is still a work in progress. But anyway, so I was a a little kid, um, and I was at Sunday school, and I think at the time, uh, for some reason, we temporarily had to attend Sunday school at the uh, Burlington High School, which I believe it wasn't just uh, apocryphal. Uh, I believe the Burlington High School actually was designed by someone who designed prisons, and it looked like a prison. It was this very dull, drab, almost cyclopean, gigantic, gray block kind of building, kind of intimidating to look at and intimidating to uh, make your way through. And uh, we had a young teacher at the time. Uh, at the time, she probably seemed like a, a grown-up, you know, an old grown-up to me. But uh, looking back through the fog of time, she was probably maybe maybe only in her late 20s or early 30s or something. 
Um, and so this Sunday school teacher was telling us how, and keep in mind, we're a bunch of little kids, maybe, you know, elementary school age or something like that, how her and some friends had been using a Ouija board around, or a Ouija board around the time of the holidays. And supposedly some demonic entity made itself known through the Ouija board and it took off of its own volition, flew around the room, knocked over the Christmas tree, sent it crashing to the ground. And so she gives this whole talk, uh, you know, kind of warning us about the dangers of messing with the occult. And as someone who was raised Catholic um, in, Catholic, in Catholicism, and I imagine other uh, strains or sects of Christianity too, there's a lot of kind of uh, forbidding or warning against of uh, dabbling with the occult, whether it be tarot cards or Ouija boards or whatever it is. Um, and I remember at the time, I mean, I was a budding little skeptic, and I think part of me said this is BS. But at the same time, part of me was totally freaked out because here's an adult. Uh, someone that whose care we're left in and, and who we're supposed to see as an authority figure is telling us this uh, crazy story. And do I believe that her and her friends actually um, accidentally invoked some kind of demon? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I think it was probably more a young person who was engaging in the kind of willing uh, or subconscious or semi-conscious suspension of disbelief. Um, or it could be some kind of, ex not necessarily lying, but exaggerating after the fact and then buying into our own story. And you might say, how do I know the Ouija board really didn't fly around the room? And I would say that since I've never seen such a thing in my own experience, of course, that's not definitive empirical evidence. Just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not true. But since I've never seen anything like that myself, since it seems to be contrary to scientific and natural law, um, since I have never seen any empirical evidence, uh, whether on, you know, videotape or whatever, that such a thing is even possible and that such stories usually end up being uh, debunked or end up being grossly exaggerated, I'm going to say she was probably a goofy young adult who was either engaging in the suspension of disbelief or allowed, you know, or, or uh, allowed herself to buy into her own exaggerated tale. Uh, and kind of like the leprechaun story, you know, I laugh at it, but uh, I still feel a little indignant for myself and my peers that, you know, an adult that we'd been trusted to would, uh, tell these kind of innocent or impressionable little kids such a story. But I guess in a way I shouldn't be surprised because when you think about it, the whole point of uh, Sunday school is basically to indoctrinate you into the the beliefs of, uh, of the Christian religion. And Christianity comes along with a whole host of uh, supernatural claims and superstitious beliefs. So it makes sense that someone whose job is going to be to try to indoctrinate you in, into this belief system just might uh, spout off some kind of nonsense about, uh, you know, the supernatural. So it, it, even though it might bother me a little, it, it still doesn't surprise me. And uh, I think another reason not to believe in something like that face value is, you know, kind of if you're going to make such 
a wild supernatural claim, the onus is kind of on you to prove it. Um, and until you do prove it, I'm going to consider it anecdotal. But anyway, on to the uh, next story. Uh, so I have two older brothers, and uh, when we were growing up, they both shared a room. And this story took place when they were probably, how old were they? I don't know. They might have been in, um, I don't know, I'll say early middle school or something like that. Um, and just put some things in context. One of my older brothers is really a kind of grounded person. Out of all four of the siblings, really always had his stuff together. Um, very rational thinker. Um, and I actually work with him doing doing construction. Um, he's kind of taking over the family business. Very smart, very practical, very uh, rational. Um, probably has a similar, at the end of the day, even though we don't talk about it a lot, he probably has a similar worldview to my, to my own when it comes to, uh, you know, things like religion or uh, being skeptical of the supernatural, etc. And yet, and then my other brother, the older of the two, um, has always been deeply religious and kind of more susceptible to uh, at least thinking in his own head that he's uh, having some kind of supernatural experience or something like that. Um, but both of them, I believe to this day, claim that uh, probably, like I said, they were probably in early middle school or something, that one night a ghost or something flew over the bed, that they both saw something fly over the bed and it scared the crap out of them and they said they thought it was a spirit or a ghost. And even my more rational brother will say he doesn't know exactly what it was, but something weird flew over the bed, you know. And so how do I react to that? So here's two people I grew up with, here's two people I know, they claim that some kind of apparition across the room or something like that. Um, well, my guess is, given their ages, that at the time they were probably two goofy kids who were probably quick to engage in the suspension of disbelief. It's probably dark in the room. Um, one of them, maybe my uh, more religious brother, who could sometimes be kind of uh, mischievous or whatever. Who knows, maybe he threw a blanket and my other brother thought it was a ghost, and then the, the one brother went along with it, or vice versa. You know, it could have been something like that. Someone threw a blanket or something and then uh, played along with the story, and uh, things got lost in the, the fog of memory, and now they both have this recollection in their head about some weird thing flying over the uh, their beds. But kind of like the... Well, I won't include the leprechaun story, because... That was just, you know, pure BS. But maybe like the Ouija board story, you know, kind of a weird, spooky tale, but long on anecdote, short on evidence. You know what I mean? Um, see, uh, and I have another one. This one is really embarrassing. I have a feeling I might have shared it on the show before, but I'll debase myself yet again. Really embarrassing story. So embarrassing, like... I wouldn't even bring it up to my friends. I just want to forget that I was even a part of it. Uh, like I said, I was naturally philosophical and skeptical from a young age. Um, and I naturally had kind of doubts about religion from a young age. Um, but that being said, there was like a brief window when maybe I was like 13 or something like that, where 
maybe I was just longing for something and uh, maybe it gave me some sense of comfort, but I temporarily got back into religion and here's where part of it gets really, and here's part of the embarrassing element of it. And uh, so back in the day when I was growing up, uh, there was this heavy metal band called Striper and um, they got their name from a quote from the book of Isaiah and the whole band wore like black and yellow striped leather outfits. They had like the big 80s like hairband hair and they used to throw out Bibles and stuff at their shows. How much they actually uh, believed in what they were espousing. I don't know. I don't know how much of it was an act and how, and, or to what degree they were actually practicing Christians in their private lives. Um, but as embarrassing as it is, because I think this is probably around the same time, uh, when I was a little kid, uh, like elementary school age, I got into bands like Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Iron Maiden, because that's what my older siblings were listening to. And it was probably right around when I was 13, I started to also get into like Metallica and Megadeth and stuff like that. And, uh, but there was this brief little moment where I kind of embraced religion again for a short bit. And I, um, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid, drank the striper Kool-Aid. And so I was hanging out with some of my little, uh, kind of mall rat friends with the little mullets and everything and concert t-shirts. And, uh, we had a sleepover at one of their houses. There was these two brothers, and uh, I think they had a single mom, and the mom was kind of into really indulging the two sons, and she used to let them have parties and sleepovers. And so there was this older kid at the party. Uh, I don't know if I should say his name or not. Uh, he probably comes out looking the best out of all of us, but actually Joe Pavone. Uh, there's this older kid, and he was kind of like this, muscular, athletic, older kid. And um, he started to claim that he was being demonically possessed during the night. You know, it's like all the lights are off or most of the lights are off. It's in the wee hours of the morning where all these little like 13 to 15 year old kids or whatever staying up late. And this kid starts pretending he's demonically possessed and we're all getting freaked out. And someone says, quick, wrap a striper shirt around his head. It's, uh, that was our attempt at trying to exercise him or make the demon go away by uh, taking a concert shirt and wrapping it around his head or whatever. I remember some of us were like almost on the verge of tears. We found it so emotional. And he was talking about how he had a grandfather that fought in World War II and his grandfather had a vision of like a jackal or something standing on the battlefield, like walking on two legs and it was actually a demonic entity, you know? So really when he got all of us deep into this and we're all buying into it, we're all freaking out. All of a sudden he pulls the shirt off his head and he starts laughing and admits it was all BS and he just wanted to kind of yank our chains. Uh, one of the most Embarrassing stories from my childhood, but in in the name of uh, truth through podcasting, I figured I'd share it. And I think th that story can probably show the dangers of groupthink, how you can get a group of people together. And uh, sociologically, it's almost as if they've all fallen under this same spell and you can all get them to believe in, in their buy into the same kind of irrational premise. 
And it's probably something similar to what you see with like, uh, <laughs> to a far greater extent than this little silly uh, sleepover or whatever. It's kind of similar to what you see with cults and things like that, where if you can get a group of people and maybe with a, a charismatic figure at the center of this group, you can really kind of suck them in and get them to believe in something that they might not buy into on their own as an individual. And it's, and it's probably um, a phenomenon that's present at the birth of a lot of religions. Or I'm thinking even of things like, um, thinking about like snake handlers and stuff like that. We can actually get a bunch of adult human beings to... Uh, whoop and holler and uh, supposedly speak in tongues and handle deadly serpents and, and think that there's some kind of supernatural force at work in the room. But I think yeah, it does show the, uh, the dangers of groupthink and how, how even um, those of us who aren't necessarily particularly gullible or lacking in intelligence can fall victim to our groupthink as well. And that just as human beings, unfortunately, it seems to be something we're susceptible to. I'm sure, of course, also the fact that we in our early teens didn't help either, where, you know, the, uh, where you're kind of short on life experience and your brain is still developing. Um, and at a point in life when you're particularly um, susceptible to peer pressure or groupthink. See, I think I did have another embarrassing story kind of along those same lines that might have took place uh, not too long after that. I think it was probably right before I started to get interested in the uh, writings of early 20th century horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. And I know I want to, I've forgotten the last couple of episodes, I want to get into the habit of making recommendations to you guys, things that aren't sponsored or anything, but that have had an effect on me or that I enjoy and I think you might enjoy. So I might say, if you feel so inclined, check out some of the short stories of horror writer uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft. He was a highly intelligent guy, uh, active as a writer during the first half of the 20th century, um, inspired a lot of horror writers, including Stephen King. Also uh, had a, a big effect, kind of a profound effect, um, posthumously on horror movies, too. And a, a lot of big horror movies out there have been... Um, kind of influenced by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. M movies like uh, the Reanimator movies, From Beyond. Uh, I think there's one of my favorite adaptations of a Lovecraft uh, story, I think, was the movie uh, Dagon, which was based on his uh, book, The uh, Shadow Over Insmith, I think. Um, but great writer, and... A lot of you people out there have probably heard of the Necronomicon, which you know would literally translate to the Book of the Dead. And uh, it's a book that Lovecraft mentioned a lot in his stories. I should mention that. I think Lovecraft, in his own personal views, was probably something along the lines of an atheist himself, despite the fanciful nature of his stories. And uh, But to add a sense of gravitas or realism to his stories... He would mention in, in many of his stories this arcane book, you know, the Necronomicon. Um, and he had this whole little history he wrote about the book, etc., that he had come up with. And um, 
the Necronomicon almost became like an urban legend type of thing where people started to wonder if it was real or not. It was an invention of Lovecraft. There is, of course, an Egyptian book of the dead, uh, a book of ancient Egyptian funerary rites, etc., but that's something completely different. But the Necronomicon uh, was an invention of Lovecraft, and someone had, which is in a bizarre way, kind of, uh, I'll give him credit, kind of an ingenious move, someone decided to write and publish a Necronomicon at one point, and you can find it, at least you used to be able to find it, in the religious section of uh, bookstores like Barnes & Noble. It might have been near the Satanic Bible or near, I don't know, the regular Bible or uh, other religious books or whatever. Um, I'm sure some stores probably kept it with, you know, occult books or whatever. But someone wrote an actual Necronomicon, and it's fairly well written in the sense that if you were to flip through it, it does have the feeling of this ancient book uh, with which contains all these kind of uh, ancient rites and all these references to uh, ancient Mesopotamian religion. There's all these names of um, gods and deities and demons and things in it. Oh, I, I can't believe I left this one out. Speaking of the effect that Lovecraft had on uh, horror... I'm sure at least some of you guys out there have to be fans of the Evil Dead movies and um, Army of Darkness, uh, which which is one. And what's at the center of all those movies? The Necronomicon. Um, and so that's another example of how Lovecraft affected horror and how the idea of his mythical book, The Necronomicon, affected horror. But yeah, the Necronomicon, the, this made-up one that someone wrote and published, think that if you were a young kid and you were to look at this, you, you might think that it was authentic or something like that. So it's supposed to be translated from, I don't know if it's Sumerian or whatever, and has all these rites for summoning the dead and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, my friends and I used to, this was like before... Um, long before iPads and iPhones. So you couldn't carry all your books in digital format on some little portable device. Uh, People were still buying actual bound books. And for a bunch of young hoodlums, uh, I guess it says something good about us. We had had an interest in reading. And one of our favorite things was going to like the local Barnes and Noble and uh, buying books. And for some reason, I bought the Necronomicon, and I think this is before I started reading Lovecraft. And this is like group think again, like a bunch of us flipping through it and getting spooked. And I think I ran out into the backyard and hurled it over my uh, fence into the woods. And then we were like freaked out, almost like an Evil Dead movie. Oh no, is, is something going to like rise up from the woods now and attack us? But uh, yeah, just another goofy anecdote that shows how goofy kids can be, how susceptible to groupthink they can be. And as I already stated, the Necronomicon, no, not an ancient uh, demonic religious text, an invention of New England horror uh, writer H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft, also uh, the person who uh, created the uh, Cthulhu or Cthulhu mythos. A lot of you guys have probably heard of the Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I'm so ashamed and like the, the adult me is so ashamed that I was ever that gullible or to put it in the vernacular, ever that douchey. But, uh, for some reason why I just said douchey, it reminded me of, uh, 
again, I usually don't say I can't stand someone. You know, I think it's like a mean-spirited thing to say. It's kind of a shortcut to thinking. But I can't stand Steve Ducey from Fox and Friends. And I like when uh, Ed Schultz sometimes calls him Steve Ducey. <clears throat> but I was just reminded of that when I said Ducey. But anyway, um, I, I have another... This story is really interesting. And I've never talked about this on the podcast, not mine, but I have talked about this on C-Web Sunday School during one of the times uh, that C-Web had me on. And he asked me if I ever had any paranormal experiences. And what I like about this story is it's one that hasn't been completely explained away yet. You know, I think this the time this happened, I was probably in my late teens, like roughly around the time I might have been graduating from high school or getting close to it. And I was with a good friend at the time, uh, and we had a falling out, which was my fault, and I still feel, like, horrible about it. Um, I feel like I left a kind of trail of bodies or, you know, dead friendships in my wake. For the most part, I think I was a nice kid. Uh, at least I tried to be, like all of us. There, there was definitely times when I was a jerk, uh, like like most of us probably growing up. And I remember I was so serious about being in a band and wanting to make it big in um, in a band. You know, I wanted to be like the next Jim Morrison that I would have done like anything to get uh, like famous or make it big. And at the same time, I really did, like I loved my friends and I was really averse to confrontation and I think in a way because I was so averse to confrontation and because I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings by being direct I ended up hurting their feelings and betraying them all the more and there'd be times when maybe like one of the guitarists in the band would threaten to leave if we didn't get rid of one of the other, you know, maybe it was something weird. Like we always had two guitarists Then maybe we brought in a third just cause we were excited uh, that, you know, another friend picked up playing guitar and we want them in the band. And then someone would get serious and be like, we don't need three guitarists. One of us is going to have to go. Or um, this kid, you know, maybe not the greatest at drums. We need to find someone else, you know, something like that. And I would be afraid to confront the person directly because I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings or create any bad blood. So it was awful. So a lot of times we just kind of find ways to like avoid the person till they got the hint or something like that. And it was just awful. And I've lost a couple of good friends that way. And this was one of them. And, uh, I probably shouldn't say his name on the air, but, you know, he looks pretty good in the story. I think I look like the jerk so far. This kid, Mike Archer, who I still miss to this day, just, uh, he was a good kid. He had kind of a dark, sarcastic sense of humor, but was still a good, loyal friend and didn't deserve to be uh, outed from, you know, and did deserve to be ousted from the band or whatever. But anyway, we were still good friends at the time the story took place. And when we weren't buying books, another, <laughs> you know, little kind of small town um, hobby we had was going to the 7-Eleven the next town over. You'd go on like a, a late night Slurpee run or something like that. So I think at the time I had like this dark blue Camaro with like T-tops or whatever. And he and I decided 
that we would go on like a Slurpee run. It was probably like, I don't know, it could have been like eight or nine at night or something. And this one doesn't have to do with the supernatural. It has to do with UFOs. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you probably didn't think that I would, being as skeptical as I am, uh, being as much of a non-believer as I am, that I would have a UFO story. But um, I do. And so, uh, and keep in mind, UFO just means unidentified flying object. It doesn't mean you actually believe it's aliens or anything. So you could look up and see through the T-tops of my car. And... As we backed out of my driveway and we start to make our way up the street, we noticed this really low-flying, it feels so weird to say craft, but this really low-flying kind of vehicle or whatever. And it almost looked like triangular in shape, like, um, you know, there's those imperial ships in the Star Wars movies that are kind of uh, like triangular or arrowhead-shaped. Uh, it looked like that. It looked like if you looked up at it, not only did it have lights around the perimeter that suggested its shape, but, and this might just be me filling in the blanks through the fog of memory, but almost looked like you could see details of the bottom of the ship too, a little bit. And so it appeared to be like this triangular ship. And it seemed to be almost hovering the way that a helicopter would and it seemed to us that it was like following us, like it would hover above the car. When we would turn, it seemed to turn and it followed us for a few streets. And when we would turn, it would turn. And then we went straight for a while down the main road till we got to 7-Eleven, came all the way back and we thought it was like following us again. And then we like ran upstairs all kind of like afraid and giddy, uh, trying to figure out what happened or whatever. Uh, you know, and on the one hand, I think we kind of got like a thrill out of it and uh, it was exciting, but at the same time we kind of freaked out. And to this day, when I try to analyze it, what was it, you know, what happened? Um, well, I think that there's probably only a couple possibilities. Uh, one is that it was just a low flying, either commercial or military vehicle. Who knows? Maybe it was a helicopter and it was just something about the particular lights or something on uh, the design of the, uh, vehicle that made it appear to be a, um, that made it appear to be triangular in shape when maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just a helicopter or um, maybe it was a really slow-moving airplane or something. Or And we thought that, well, I don't know if there is such thing as a really slow-moving airplane, but you know what I mean. Maybe it was like a relatively slow airplane and it appeared to us as if it was hovering and maybe something to do with perspective or angle it appeared to follow us and it really wasn't so maybe it was just like a normal craft that's one possibility and the other possibility is well what is the other possibility uh if it wasn't a normal craft maybe it was some weird kind of military craft uh then there's always the possibility that maybe, I mean, is there a possibility that it was an alien craft? I mean, you never know. My gut and my reason tell me, no, it most likely wasn't. And um, I'm probably not about to help my case here, but yes, I do believe that life most likely exists elsewhere in the universe. I think, um, I think it's called the Drake equation. There's even an equation that a scientist came up with once 
that kind of tries to uh, calculate how many populated planets there are in the universe and uh or at least in our galaxy or something like that and it further tries to uh figure or calculate how much of that life is intelligent how much of that life is probably microbial or something like that and i just think that knowing that what we know about life here on earth if life arose here it could probably arise elsewhere as well um and at one point you know we thought that the conditions for life had to be just right and that life was fragile and you needed sunlight and this and that. And we now know about things like um, there's creatures that can live by using what's known as chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis. Um, that, you know, they can live off of chemicals that we wouldn't think is possible for a creature to live off of. We know that creatures can live in the inhospitable environment at the the bottom of the sea uh, where we have what's known as black smokers, you know, those kind of volcanic vents. And there's all sorts of weird albino life, you know, at the bottom of the ocean living in these environments that we wouldn't think would be possible to live in. Uh, we know there's creatures that live in kind of cave environments where we previously thought life wouldn't be able to live. Uh, or, or prosper. So I think most likely there is life spread out throughout the universe. I think that's what the math or, you know, the, the uh, statistics are, um, um, would suggest. Um, how much that life would be intelligent, that would be as self-aware as, at least as self-aware as we are, I don't know. I imagine a good deal of the life out there is probably microbial. It's probably very simple or rudimentary. Um, but most likely, I, I think, and I'm not alone in this, I think that actual, uh, the consensus in the scientific community would probably kind of um, fall in line with what I'm saying that there most likely is life out there. But I'm very skeptical or dubious that life has visited this planet. I just haven't seen satisfactory evidence to, to support that. Um, you know, we have those like crazy ancient astronaut theorists and as entertaining as that is, um, it doesn't really amount to evidence. You know, they'll make all these kind of logical leaps or illogical leaps like... This structure, this ancient structure is so impressive. You can't fit a razor blade between the blocks. So that much must mean that aliens built it. Or uh, I've heard some ancient alien theorists backtrack a little. Oh, we're not saying that the aliens built it themselves. They just helped the humans build it. Or uh, maybe if you look sideways at this picture, it kind of this ancient Mayan guy looks like he's flying a rocket ship. Um, well, that's not really evidence that's your interpretation and you could also say well if this ancient mayan king or whatever is flying a rocket ship why the hell is he appear to be wearing a tunic and no helmet he's probably not gonna last too long um you know and i don't know if he's gonna make it through the van allen belt or if he's gonna make it through um the upper atmosphere uh but you know so it's the ancient alien theorists it's so weird um in a way, it's insulting to human intelligence and human ingenuity. Uh, you know, one of my favorite people, skeptic Michael Shermer, I've heard him say kind of, you know, um, in his sarcastic way, 
talking about the pyramids or whatever. You know, aliens didn't build it. It's just a pile of rocks, guys. Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't just think it's a pile of rocks. And he probably doesn't either. You know, I shouldn't hold him accountable for one passing comment. But um, things like the Egyptian pyramids, the uh, pyramidal structures in, in the Americas, these type of things really are breathtaking. They really are impressive and amazing. Um, but not so much that humans couldn't have built them. And to kind of go with the Occam's razor approach, what's the simplest or most likely solution? That humans, through maybe trial and error or whatever, were able to use their ingenuity, uh, to use their big brains, to come up with a way to manipulate large stones, or that extraterrestrials from uh, outer space came down and uh, either built these structures or helped build them. And I, I, I think I once joked around with one of my cousins, I'm like, if aliens built these structures, wouldn't you expect them to at least look like Apple stores or something? Maybe they'd be made out of glass and metal instead of just stone. Uh, not saying that's evidence uh, in, in and of itself, but you know, even things like, uh, not only will they say that aliens built the pyramids or whatever, but then they'll say that the Egyptian pantheon of gods, many of which are animal-headed, were really uh, these alien-engineered uh, hybrids, that they were actually uh, human beings with animal heads or something like that, uh, some type of weird alien genetic experiment. And once again, Occam's razor, uh, what's the simpler solution? Um, that aliens came down and used some kind of genetic splicing to create man-dog hybrids or whatever, man-hawk uh, hybrids, or that ancient people, as we see all over the world, kind of take their cues or are inspired by the natural world. And often that magical creatures, deities, uh, will have aspects that resemble aspects of creatures that live in the indigenous environment, such as uh, in ancient Egypt, in the area of the Nile River, we have crocodiles. Uh, is it hippopotami? <laughs> you know, we have uh, hippopotamuses. Uh, you know, we have things like ibises. We have uh, birds of prey like hawks, um, jackals, and wild dogs. And, uh, and oh, what a coincidence. What animals do the Egyptian deities uh, represent? Well, we have like the jackal-headed Anubis, the god of the dead. Um, we have Horus, who has um, a falcon head. I believe it's a falcon, or is it a hawk? Horus, the son of, uh, of Isis and Osiris, lost an eye in a fight with uh, his uncle Set, sometimes pronounced or spelled Seth, and that's why we have that ancient Egyptian symbol of the single eye, also known as the widget. Um, we have the god Thoth, who has an ibis head. Uh, Sobek has a crocodile head. We have a protective maternal deity with the head of a hippopotamus. So uh, my thinking is that ancient people looked at the natural world around them and they integrated some of those aspects into their deities. Uh, and I think that's a much more reasonable and down-to-earth, no pun intended, explanation that aliens came down and started crossbreeding people with animals when there's absolutely no empirical evidence for that. 
Um, yeah, so just to reiterate, my UFO story, I'm not saying I saw an alien vessel. <laughs> I'm just saying a friend and I did have an experience with something uh, flying above us that where we weren't quite sure what the heck it was. And um, I mentioned earlier how I had, how I have uh, a brother who is religious, one of my older brothers. And um, this is where it gets kind of sad. I mean, this isn't as uh, trivial as some of the other stories. Um, but my brother used to be really into weightlifting, kickboxing, karate. And I feel kind of weird telling such an intimate story uh, on the air or whatever. Um, used to be in great shape built like a tank. He got injured kickboxing and uh, he developed like uh, these neck and back problems where he lost sensation, according to him, uh, was almost paralyzed. Uh, and he also had some other issues too. Um, and so he, like I said, he was deeply religious, uh, still is. And he started going to a faith healer. Um, you know, it's like big faith healer would come around and... Uh, my brother would, uh, I think it costs money to attend, if I remember correctly. He would go to these events, and he would get this temporary high or rush where the guy would lay hands on him, and he'd feel automatically better. He'd have, like, this rush. Then guess what? Eventually the rush wears off, and you're right back to where you were before. You know what I mean? So it's kind of sad. So he almost had, like, this kind of addiction to the to faith here. And it's sad, I think, because you see someone who's in pain or some kind of suffering and they're turning to someone for relief or help and since i don't believe in the supernatural i mean there's only two possibilities either the guy's a charlatan or he believes in his own bs um and he's well-intentioned but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because the faith healing apparently doesn't work and like richard dawkins says you know it's funny how you never see the miraculous uh, regrowing of a severed limb. It's usually always something that would get better anyway. It kind of reminds me, uh, I don't know if it's like a guilty pleasure or not, but I, f I kept hearing all this talk about uh, Orange is the New Black, so I just got around to uh, watching it. And um, there's this one character who's like this little kind of mousy girl who's supposed to be like a uh, meth head or whatever, and she's deeply religious. And she thinks she can channel the Holy Spirit and perform faith healings. There's a girl who says she has a headache and the faith healing girl asks, you know, is it really bad? And the girl's like, kinda. <laughs> you know? And then she lays hands on the girl and, and um, cures her of her <laughs> kinda bad headache. But then later on, there's a part where these other girls set her up, the, one of them being the main character. And uh, they're doing one of those scared straight things where the uh the kids come to the prison and the inmates try to you know set them on the right path by scaring them and one of the girls is in a wheelchair and so they tell the faith healer girl there's someone in the bathroom who needs to be healed and so obviously she can't make this girl walk again and then like the uh co's find um this mousy little meth head on top of this poor girl who's been dumped out of her wheelchair and uh you know the, the uh, meth head's wildly trying to uh heal her but it's not working and the girl's just like crawling on the floor 
Um, but it's funny. We now know. I forget the names off my off the top of my head, but we now know that there are really like prominent faith heal faith healers who were just outright proven to be frauds, and it was proven that that they would have air pieces, and they would have people working backstage who kind of uh, worked the crowd beforehand and got information from people, and then they would feed that information to the uh, reverend or pastor or whatever the faith healer is, and uh, he would appear to have this knowledge about people's ailments that he shouldn't have uh, had earthly access to or whatever. But with that being said, um, hopefully I shared enough anecdotes and hopefully with some of those, I didn't embarrass myself too much. But that being said, I'll call this episode a wrap. You know how it goes. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. Check out the Weekend Out YouTube channel. Uh, listen on Stitcher. You can subscribe or rate the show through iTunes. You can also uh, subscribe to the show through Podbean. Check out the archives at Podbean. If you feel generous, like John Hosted, um, you can donate to the show's upkeep through Podbean. Uh, I pay like $19.95 a month or something like that for uh, fees. Everything comes out of pocket. Um, so don't worry, it's not like I'm some kind of televangelist or faith healer here, like raking in money hand over fist. Uh, I've had a very small number of people donate to the show's upkeep. Uh, John, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, donated twice, and I greatly appreciate it. Hate asking for money, yet I do it. What's that all about? I Well, I guess it's because I've kind of like a hyperactive conscience, you know. I always kind of sell myself short or feel like... I don't have a right to ask for money or I might even in my with my design work, I might sometimes undersell myself or whatever. I'm like, oh, I don't have a right to charge that. But then when I kind of stick up for myself, you know, and I look at it like I do this podcast and um, I put a lot of thought and effort into it. I try to be as sincere and candid as I can be and I hope I'm doing good work with it. And it is a product in a sense. So, uh, I mean, it's a labor of love. So no matter what, I, I plan to keep doing this. I'm at uh, episode 116. And I think I made a promise on the air not long ago that I would at least do up to 300 episodes. And then we'll see what happens. Initially, it was 100 episodes. And uh, when I reached that mark, I decided I was having fun. I liked what I was doing. I was greatly moved by all the positive feedback so that I was going to keep on going. So I'm going to keep on going at least till 300 episodes, whether I make money off of the show or not. But obviously everyone likes making money. So if anyone ever wants to donate as little as 99 cents to the show, uh, just to kind of give back a little something, if you think I'm doing a good job, you can do that. Don't feel guilty if you don't feel like doing that, because I'm a podcast junkie, like I always say, and it's rare that I donate. I, I mean, I feel bad about that, but hey, uh, keeping it real, as they say. And also, uh, I have a Patreon account, and I think you can also donate like a dollar a month through Patreon or whatever. The whole money issue always makes me feel dirty. But we do live in a world where people exchange uh, money for goods and services. And uh, we live in a world now where it seems like everyone, their grandmother has a Kickstarter account or whatever. So I guess I shouldn't feel too bad about uh, um, making mention of the virtual collection. Uh, but that being said, as always, thanks for listening and enjoy.